If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. I, uh, just a quick word, just really appreciate our students leading us in this uh, series. If you've been around the last few weeks, um, one student has been leading us in the call to worship and then answering one of these questions on video, as Carson did this morning. Carson's response uh, this morning, I told them it was just really compelling for me. I'll talk a little bit more about his response in a moment. But I want you to think about your response to this question. Uh, Jesus learned obedience from his suffering. In the midst of suffering, how are you learning from Jesus? Or how have you learned from Jesus? In the midst of suffering, how are you? How will you learn from Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, we'll dive in here with these first six verses. If you have your Bibles, follow along. It says this, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, the high priest, is able to deal, deal gently with those who are ignorant And are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A little bit of context uh, before we move into the heart of this chapter of scripture. One of the reasons that this writer, writer of the letter to the Hebrews is to ensure that Jewish believers know that Jesus is supremely great. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than... David, he's greater than anyone, he's greater than anything. And in these verses, we hear about Jesus being greater. He's our great high priest, uh, greater than the high priest Melchizedek. It's said in those verses that the role of the high priest, really big role, the role of the high priest was the person who would stand between God and the people as a representative to him. The high priest would be the one who would bring offerings to God would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of himself and the Jewish nation. Once a year, the high priest, uh, it was called the Day of Atonement. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, and offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of all of Israel. There's a fascinating description of all of this in Leviticus chapter 16. If you want to learn more about this whole thing about Uh, The high priest and Aaron is there and there's a literal scapegoat there. The invitation to rest, uh, check out Leviticus 16. This reference to this guy named Melchizedek. For the Jews, Melchizedek is this archetype of all the priesthood. And we'll spend a little bit more time talking about Melchizedek next week in chapter 6 of Hebrews. But if you have your Bibles, just flip back real quick. I want you to hear just another word about him. Psalm 110 Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, just flip back real quick to Psalm 110. I want you just to hear this prophecy, a word of history and prophecy. Um, 
found in Psalm 110. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The psalmist is saying Messiah will come from the order of Melchizedek and he will reign and he will rule and he will be our high priest forever. Now check out the next couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 5. I think these are the heart of the chapter. So with that background, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There is a lot going on in these couple of verses. A whole lot. I'm going to read it one more time and just want you to If you can, just hone in on what resonates most deeply with you. Just what speaks most personally to you. So, one more time. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I don't know uh, what speaks most personally to you. Um, I know what speaks most personally to me. It was that which I asked Carson to talk about. What speaks most personally to me is This line that says he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus, fully man and fully God. Here, he learned obedience, fully man, from what he suffered. We read these verses last week uh, from Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God. God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How can Jesus empathize with us if he's never sinned? Like, how can he understand the pressures of our life if he's never been toppled by the pressures of life like we have? Can I just say, he knows. He knows. He knows. There's only one place in scripture that fits this passage. Uh, The first part of that passage noted in verse 7. The prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from his death. 
And he was heard because of his reverent submission. There's only one real place that fits that description. And that's the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus comes face to face with all of it. Uh, This is just a side note. Uh, Jesus spends a lot of time preparing his disciples for his death. He spends a lot of time telling them what's going to happen and where you guys need to be and, and what you need to do. He walks them through a a whole series of events. He references the fulfillment of prophecy. He talks about the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we hear about this scene in the garden. And Jesus never talked about it. Never once. Never once did he mention it to his best friends, Peter, James, and John. And I think it's because the closer he got to the cross, the more he understood what was actually before him. It wasn't just sheer physical pain that Jesus would endure. He would carry the weight of the world to the cross. And there he would experience the full wrath of God in order to make atonement for all of our sin. The sin of the entire world, past, present, and future sin. And the closer he got to the cross, the more real all of this became. I can't even imagine. I can't even begin to describe. We have no idea of the magnitude of such sacrifice that was going to be put upon Jesus. Now, this is just one more side note. Never once in Jesus's ministry does he ask his friends to pray for him. He never appeals to them for help. And yet here in the garden, he does exactly that. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip back to Matthew chapter 26, these are the first few verses of the scene in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus invites his friends, these three really close friends, to pray for him as he moves deeper into the shadows, falling on his knees, and then on his face, crying out to the father. Three times he prays, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Jesus is now understanding what is in front of him. Deeper still, he's understanding what's going to happen and all that he will suffer. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way. He's now beginning to experience the full misery which sin produces in the heart of the sinner. All the naked filth of of the human depravity is being placed upon him and he feels the burning and the searing shame of your sin and mine as if they were his own and he says not this not this let this cup pass Hebrews says son though he was he learned obedience from what he suffered here Jesus learns what it means 
to obey when every cell in his body wants to disobey. Instead, he submits to the will of God. He says, okay. Jesus trusts God to see him through. You don't hear Jesus blame God. You don't hear Jesus question the Father's wisdom. He doesn't take refuge in unbelief. Even though this agony came unexpectedly upon him, you never hear Jesus say, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? He says, let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus casts himself upon the tender love of his father to sustain him. He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hey, real quick, how have you learned obedience through suffering? I can't get over what Carson said in his video. We watched it a few minutes ago. When he sent it to me, I must have watched it like 10 times. I couldn't get over what he said. He said, you can't go through it alone. Did you hear that? Did you hear him say that in the video? In suffering, you can't do it alone. Don't suffer alone. I thought, man, what wisdom. You can't suffer alone. We learn obedience through suffering, according to Carson, when we invite our friends along. It's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus entered into the full force of two of our lives, greatest mysteries, obedience and suffering. And to engage these mysteries, he chooses to bring along some friends. Friends who wouldn't understand. Friends who wouldn't get it. Friends who would fall asleep. Friends who had to be reminded, hey, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Who do you bring along when your soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? I was thinking, who calls you? Are you the kind of person that when someone is suffering, when someone is in this place of sorrow, when their soul is troubled to the point of death, they think, I know exactly who will walk this valley with me. We might say that Jesus' friends let him down, but Jesus doesn't condemn those guys. In fact, he doesn't even give up on those guys. He decides he's going to build the church on those three guys, Peter, James, and John. I love that. These next couple of verses are pretty hardcore. Uh, verse 11 through 14. It's going to kind of sound like a left-hand turn, but it'll all come together in the end. It's not. The writer's just going to push us. Verse 11 begins the third of the five warnings in the letter to the Hebrews. This is the strongest warning. It's the danger of immaturity. It's the danger of apathy, the danger of passivity. From verse 11 through chapter 12, we're going to hear this constant drumbeat of taking responsibility for our own 
uh, salvation, to live into the salvation that Jesus made possible, to take responsibility for ourselves. These verses call us to examine our current place in our spiritual lives and commit to growing in faith and practice. So here's the first line. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer even try to understand. This is really hardcore. There's an indictment on this little group of people. It's super disappointing. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you don't even try to understand anymore. I can hear him. I can hear him. I, I can hear him. I could talk about this all day, you guys. I could talk about the goodness and grace of God all day long. I could talk about how grace is experienced in community, about the new covenant, about how to love others the way he loves us, about laying our lives down for the sake of others, about subjecting our freedom for the sake of others. I could talk about it all day long, but you don't want to listen to that anymore. You just want the stuff that you can agree with, that you can say amen to, amen. In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Ray Steadman points out uh, three observations in these verses. First, there's a clear suggestion here that age does not produce maturity. Age does not produce spiritual maturity. I thought that was the plan. I thought that by the time we got older, we'd have all of this stuff figured out. It just doesn't work that way, does it? We'd like to think it is. We'd like to think, oh, maturity is inevitable as we grow older. Uh, time never brings maturity. Maturity brings maturity. We're not going to wake up one day and have it all figured out. We're going to have to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Secondly, immaturity is self-identifying. Uh, we see this around here. Uh, when we talk to people, oftentimes uh, find myself in a situation where I'm asking someone to co-facilitate a small group, lead a group of men or lead a group of women. And oftentimes I hear, oh, I can't do that. I can't lead a group like that. I'm not mature enough. Or sometimes when we talk about like coming alongside our students or coming alongside our kids or serving in our kids ministry, I, I hear this all the time. Oh, uh, those kids know more about the Bible than I do. I, I, I don't even like my own kids. There's no way that I'd like somebody else's kids. Immaturity is self-identifying. Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And lastly, the third point that Ray Stedman points out is there's an inability to discern good from evil. We're falling into the same sin, allowing fear to win in the same places, worrying about the same things all the while, missing out on the beauty of God. Jesus said, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. All right, you guys still with me? Everybody with me? I got, I got one nod. Steve is with me. Steve, me and you are going to the end. Stay with me. We're going to keep going. If we look at these verses, the context of these first five chapters of the book, 
I don't think, I think what's happening here is the writer is using some irony. That's what I think he's doing. Up to this point, he certainly sees this group of people as mature Christians. The writer doesn't present anything elementary in these first four chapters. In fact, the first four chapters and chapter five presupposes maturity. He's using irony to help them recall the stance of conviction and boldness consonant with their experience and hope. He's saying you're sidestepping your responsibility and it's threatening your integrity as a Christian. Around here, Matt said it earlier, our heartbeat is to be transformed by the gospel to live in love like Jesus. Jesus is our example in every way. How did Jesus grow? He learned obedience from what he suffered. And in that place, he didn't go it alone. He brought some friends along with him. I don't think it's possible to be transformed to live in love like Jesus without bringing some friends along. I don't think faithfulness in suffering and obedience are possible in isolation. Transformation happens when we know, when we're known, when we truly know the souls of others and when others truly know the condition of our own soul. Every time Paul writes about transformation in the New Testament, he writes to communities of faith. He never writes to private individuals. Never writes to private individuals about transformation. It's always set in the context of the local church. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Galatians 4, 19. All teachings on transformation and all discipleship, it's addressed to communities. Let me illustrate all of this in two ways, and then I'll close. Uh, back in the late 1900s, I began my seminary journey at Fuller Theological Seminary. And very quickly, I heard about this professor, Dr. J. Robert Clinton. He was a leadership guy. I don't know if this will give him any credibility with some of you guys, but his undergrad is from Auburn. Okay, somebody's listening. We got some more people with us, Steve. Roll tight, I heard over here. Okay. One of Dr. Clinton's best-known studies is a study that he did which examined all the biblical leaders, all the leaders in the Bible. He had a particular interest in learning about how leaders in the Bible, how and if they finished their lives well. We know a lot of stories in the Bible where leaders didn't finish their lives well. Dr. Clinton said there's probably about a thousand leaders in the Bible, many of those you know. And he sort of asks this question, how many do you think finished their lives well? Not saying that they didn't make it to heaven, uh, but leaders who in Paul's words to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Take a guess. How many people, let's say there's a thousand how many of those leaders do you think finished their lives well? Clinton narrowed it down. There's like 400 at one point and down to 49. But how many leaders finished their lives well? Why don't you tell the person sitting next to you? 
Go ahead. Tell the person next to you what you think. What do you think? What percentage of these leaders finish their lives well? So we'll first hear from the Auburn grads. You guys, no, just kidding. (laughs) 30%. What I'm saying, what Dr. Clinton said, that means 70% of all biblical leaders didn't finish their lives well. 70% of all biblical leaders missed out on God's ultimate plan for their lives. And when Dr. Clinton examined the characteristics of those who finished their lives well, what was one of the most prominent characteristics? I'll give you the three. They had an eternal perspective. They had an eternal perspective. Secondly, spiritual renewal. They partnered with God in the transformation of their own souls And thirdly, they brought some friends along. Last illustration is this. Many years ago, I met this kid at Mount Perrin. He was about the same age as my older daughter, and our families overlapped a bunch as they grew up. And when he was in high school uh, and we started sanctuary, he and I were buddies. And so he told his parents, we're going to sanctuary. I got to help that guy because he needs my help. You know, he was the coolest kid. He is the coolest kid, leader kind of kid. Uh, we volunteered together at the Dream Center. Uh, we shared meals at Waffle House. Uh, we used to meet at Waffle House on Christmas Eve morning every year. And then one day he asked me to do his wedding. I had met his girlfriend and we'd been out a couple times and It was an amazing season, getting to meet his friends, getting to hang out with his fiance, his bride. He was so excited, and they did everything right in their uh, engagement season. They did everything right. And at the rehearsal dinner, I heard one friend after another stand up and talk about how great this kid was. They beamed when they talk about this groom. They talked about his character and they talked about his integrity and they talked about his deep commitment to Christ and his deep commitment to bringing friends along. He's always bringing friends along. I just was so impressed with this whole thing that usually at weddings, like we show up, like if I'm doing the wedding, we kind of show up like right before, but I was so impressed with these guys at the rehearsal dinner that we showed up really early the next day so that we could be there. And uh, my buddy that was getting married, he's like, what are you doing here? You don't need to be here until like, like three hours. And I was like, I just wanted to hang out with you and your friends. Is that okay? And he goes, well, it's weird, but yeah, it's okay. And we just hung out. It was amazing. We just had the best time. And right before it was time for the wedding, all of these guys circled him up. They put him in the middle and they prayed blessings over him. They just blessed him. It was so powerful, you guys. I couldn't get over it. I was just blown away by this little community of friends. And the wedding was amazing. And we danced. And at the reception, uh, there was great cake. And we always sneak out after the cake. And so we snuck out and we left to get ready, come back to church on Sunday. And four months later, this guy's wife walked out. And never came back. 
about four months. And uh, he came up here that day after she left, and we just, we just wept, you know? <laughs> if there was ever a time of disobedience, it's in the midst of suffering, but not this kid. Into the darkness of suffering and the temptation of disobedience, he chose to bring some friends along, those guys. And he prayed, and I prayed, and we prayed, not this, God, not this. This can't be it. This can't be the way. Not this. And for the last four years, I've seen God show up time and time again in this kid's life. And last night, he said, though it was the darkest time of my life, it was also the deepest time of my life with my friends. And I thought, where would he be? if he hadn't chosen to bring some friends along. My faith has been immeasurably impacted by the journey of being friends with this kid and his willingness to be obedient in the face of suffering. How about you? How about you? Let's pray. Jesus, our great high priest, we give you praise. Thank you for loving us as we are, where we are. Thank you for meeting us here, for ministering to us here, and leading us from here. We give you praise. Would you help us, Jesus? Would you help us trust you with our hearts? Would you help us trust you with entrusting our hearts to a little group of people? Would you help us to follow your example even to places that are hard, that are difficult? Would you meet us here and begin to lead us there? Jesus, in these moments, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts. I pray that you give us ears to hear what you are saying to this church and to our hearts. I pray in your name. Amen. And in these moments, just want to invite you to respond as God prompts you to respond. If you want to remember sacrifice of Jesus. There's communion stations around the room. I want to invite you to take communion. If you need someone to pray with you, there'll be some folks there by the stairs back there in just a moment. They've already been praying and they'll be back there to pray with you, to pray for you. If you want to just sit in your seat, pray, or sing as Sonny leads us. Just want to invite you to respond as Jesus is leading you to respond. Let's hear him. Let's follow him in his name.